Welcome to 28 Tech, the series that looks at how technology and innovation are impacting various industries and markets around the globe. Having looked at topics such as travel, food and wine, developing countries and learning in the digital age so far, today we tackle the news industry. I'm Angelina Draper and my guests today are Lou Ferrara from the Associated Press. The newsroom, I find that, you know, you're, you have a tsunami coming in every 60 seconds of just constant information. And so there are tools we've been putting together that I think can help prioritize or help signal what may be a breaking news story or a top story of interest. Journalist and author Dan Gilmer. Technology has given people who in the past were only an audience uh, the ability to participate in this emerging global conversation uh, of which traditional, traditional news is one part. And The Economist's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite. When we sat and we looked at all the other people who were producing at the time, they tend to do a lot with bells and whistles and multimedia and video and this thing and that. Many of them are wonderful. But we thought what our readers wanted really was a very, very you know, slim down, sleek and very easy to use digital version of the paper. But first, a selection of some of the most interesting tech stories from around the world this week. It was reported this week that a Russian website called Insacam has been streaming thousands of private webcam feeds without the owner's knowledge. The images include live feeds from baby monitors, standalone webcams and CCTV systems. Amongst others, they showed live feeds from daycare centres, workplaces and private homes. Data watchdogs around the globe have been drawing attention to the need to change default passwords that are linked to many webcams at the time of purchase. They should be changed to unique passwords. The website in question said it only contained access to cameras without a password, making their operation legal. According to a New York Magazine report, Intercam's administrators say the site is not malicious and simply intends to bring attention to an existing security problem many ignore. Singapore's government announced tighter regulations for taxi booking services like Easy Taxi, Uber and Grab Taxi. The regulations should come into effect in the second quarter of next year and will require the services to only use licensed drivers and vehicles. Amongst the new rules is one that bans clients from being forced to specify their destination when placing a booking. The aim is to stop drivers cherry-picking rides. The British inventor behind Dyson Vacuums, Sir James Dyson, announced this week that his company would commit £1 billion to develop 100 new products in four years. Speaking on the BBC, he said it was important to grow British research and development by encouraging children to explore technology and design. He added that engineers who studied in the United Kingdom should be encouraged to stay in the country after their course finished. Mr. Dyson also announced a £200 million investment for the expansion of the company's manufacturing facilities in Southeast Asia, specifically Singapore and Malaysia. The South Korean government announced on Friday that it was cracking down on selfie sticks. The smartphone accessory, which extends like a radio antenna, allowing users to take selfies, has come under the scrutiny of the science ministry, according to the Wall Street Journal. The problem is with models that include a Bluetooth functionality, allowing the user to operate the smartphone through a button on the handle of the selfie stick. This classifies the device as a communication equipment, warranting certain tests. 
Anyone caught selling uncertified products faces fines of up to US$27,000 or even a prison term of up to three years. My first guest today is Lou Ferrara. He is a veteran of the news industry who was recruited to oversee all of the Associated Press's online content before becoming the Vice President for Sports, Entertainment and Business News at the AP. Lou spoke to me by phone from New York about the way digital technology is changing the way news organizations are sourcing and reporting news. I started by asking him how the dynamics within the newsroom were impacted by new technologies. Well, I I think over the past decade, the AP at least, uh, we've We've been involved in transforming the newsroom to just be entirely oriented toward digital. Um, I think that's easier said than done. Uh, not that the newsroom is necessarily resistant, but you know, um, when you're a, an organization like or, like ours, in which the a B2B organization, business to business, and um, most of your customers were newspapers, um, American newspapers, and um, as well as broadcasters, and that shift has affected all of your customers, it, it sometimes can take you longer to get there. Um, but I think, you know, the effect has been positive in the sense that the AP, the reason we've been around for 168 years is that um, we've adapted to change over time, no matter what the medium was that came through. We've gone from horseback to telegraph to, to um, teletype machines to radio to TV broadcast to satellite to everything, and so um, digital photography and so on. And so, um, you know, if you take the long view, which we tend to do here, this is an adaptation that we need to make. Um, but it's generally been been good, although hard at times. And has has digital media changed the way in which the journalists are interacting um, within the newsroom when they're gathering, when they're putting together the news, and with the editors themselves? Oh, I think so. I, I, I think definitely, um, and I think that's true of any, any good newsroom because, um, you know, we, we talk to a lot of customers. The good thing about the AP is we're on, on the front line, of, I think, with all of our customers. And, you know, when you have that view, um, I can't think of a newsroom right now that isn't engaged with social media and looking at things digitally that they weren't looking at five years ago, whether it be TweetDeck or – WeChat or whatever it may be, um, that level of engagement is happening at, I think, at the high editorial level and then right down to the reporters. I mean, our most effective beat reporters, um, I find, are known very well in their beats because they're active on social media. People can reach out to them on social media. I've had numerous instances where people have reached out to reporters on social media and not by email. Uh, or anything like that. So it's certainly, I think it's changed the game from from top to bottom. Uh, I can't I can't think of a part of our organization that has not been touched by digital and social media, right down to the core of how you're covering things and how you're uh, reporting things. And what are some of the the ways that you're managing the the flood of information that's coming in? Um, obviously, because of social media, because of the internet, and also because of um, the user generated content that's being supplied to you as well. Are there any d- devices that are being used to help filter through, or maybe to prioritize news? Yeah, that, you actually raise a very good um, 
question and point in the process, which is that that's probably the the most under-talked-about, if you will, part of the transformation that's going on right now and that's been happening, which is just as all of us as individuals are overwhelmed with the amount of content, the amount of content that comes through each day through our phones and through our different devices, the newsroom, the newsroom I find that's, you know, you're, you're you have a tsunami coming in every 60 seconds of just constant information. And so there are tools we've been putting together that I think can help prioritize or help signal what may be a breaking news story or a top story of interest to try to give you an early warning system so you can get on those things. And additionally, um, you know, weeding through what's trending and what people are talking about. I think from what I can tell, I mean, this is just my opinion, I don't claim to have a crystal ball on this, but that journalism and news production is going to continue to be a bit of art and science. You can absorb all that data, you can track all that data, and it can drive a lot of of decision-making. But then, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of the stories that end up trending, if you will, are stories we broke that weren't going to be covered or other organizations broke, whether it was the BBC or uh, the New York Times or um, whatever the organization may be. So there is an art and science to this. You can't, you have to track that data and you have to analyze that data and hopefully it it filters through in an effective way that um, you can deliver for your customers and for the public. But at the same time, you kind of have to lead and be the one out there that's that's creating the content that that you want people consuming. There's a lot of talk about journalists needing to learn new skills. Um, Quite a lot of uh, mention has been made about coding and journalists being able to know how to code. Do you really think that that's relevant? Or would you say that the technological influences in journalism are now so big that actually there are full-time roles for coders um, within um, newsrooms, for example, and journalists can continue purely to do their, their job of reporting and gathering news? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's always been a myth. I mean, in the 20-some-odd years I've been in the business, there's been a myth out there with each iteration of, of new media coming on that suddenly you need to know how, every, that everyone needs to know how to shoot video, that everyone needs to know how to shoot photos, yes. that everyone needs to know how to code, et cetera, et cetera, right? And actually, that's just not true. You, you're going to have specialists in newsrooms that, that do certain things extremely, extremely well. And we want those people. So that's why we have AP Photos. That's why we have AP Video. And it's not that they don't cross over. It's not that we don't have photographers who are able to shoot video and write stories and videographers who are able to do everything, too. But it's the same with coding. And we have people who are able to do coding and report. And I think that is going to be a skill set that's desired within the – newsroom operations, and we're seeing more and more of it. I'm hiring right now, I'm recruiting for an automation editor, someone who can look over our operations and how do we automate some things better in the journalism that we do. But this idea that everyone should code reminds me of several years ago that you were going to have everything had to be, you know, social media. um, And actually, it just becomes part of things you do. And there aren't a lot, there are some, but you know, you have a handful of specialists in social media, and then everybody can do some basic stuff. So I, I'm not a full believer that every journalist, I mean, I've got, you know, we've got 2,500 journalists at the Associated Press, and I don't need all of them coding. I need all of them reporting. The number one skill I need are great reporting and interpersonal skills, 
because as all this technology comes along and we use it, we need people who know how to communicate with people to extract information and get information that no one else has to report that. One of the greatest impacts the Internet, and more specifically social media, have had on journalism has been the rise of so-called social journalism. Wikipedia defines this as a media model consisting of a hybrid of professional journalism, contributor and reader content. To find out more about citizen journalism and user-generated content, I spoke to author, journalist and lecturer at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, Dan Gilmore. Technology has given people who in the past were only an audience uh, the ability to participate in this emerging global conversation uh, of which traditional traditional news is one part. Uh, My friend Jay Rosen has described citizen journalism as the uh, ability of the people who were the audience to use the tools to tell their own stories and provide their own information. And I think that's a reasonably good definition. And what about the creation of new stories? In your experience, are citizen journalists creating the news and traditional media are then tasked with verifying and checking the facts and and chasing that story? Or is it the other way around? And is that shifting with time? Well, the answer is yes to to all of the above. It's, It's no single... Thing and it's uh, a variety of uh, new kinds of things going on in this ecosystem that's getting more diverse all the time. Uh, if uh, if the traditional media actually were noted for you know stupendous fact checking, I would say that would be great if they did that with other things. But you know we've seen plenty of failures there too. So I think that. The important thing to keep in mind is that this is an opportunity for both people in traditional journalism and people who are now using these tools uh, in many different ways to join in a conversation together where they all get more out of it. Do you think that people are consuming news in sound bites and actually not interested in finding out the the, the what would be called the full story or reading a long form uh, piece of journalism? People are, in general, uh, getting more information in uh, bites of information. But I'm not sure how that they weren't doing that before. Um, studies of, of newspapers over the years have shown pretty conclusively that people don't read past the jump that is inside the newspaper on most things. People will read a long piece or listen to a long program or watch a long program if they're really interested in the topic, but they'll glance at it, if not, and they'll get something out of just the glance, and they always have. So the new media gives us more possibilities for that and more possibilities for going into depth on what used to be niche topics that nobody covered in depth. So the potential is enormous. Whether we're getting the most out of that potential is uh, another issue. So our scope is broader today. Our scope is broader if we want it to be, and our our ability to know what we're talking about has never been greater. Uh, the, the issue with that, of course, is that uh, we're flooded with things we can't necessarily depend on, uh, and we 
have one gating factor, as they say, which is time. Large news organizations, for instance, I'll quote CNN and The Guardian, Mm -hmm. have launched outlets such as Guardian Witness or CNNI Report where they invite users to contribute content. In some cases, this is verified. CNN, for example, puts a stamp of verification on those that they have verified the facts, but it also uploads those that haven't been. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this collaboration between citizen journalists and traditional media outlets? I think it's fine if everyone understands what they're getting from, uh, and and I mean everyone, including the people providing the information. Uh, CNN got badly burned uh, a few years ago with a so-called iReport that was fake. Uh, Someone claimed that Steve Jobs had died long before he did, and uh, it had some impact in the wider market when it was picked up by some bloggers. And Uh, I think CNN learned from that, and they're labeling things better than they used to be. But the business model, uh, if if it's done by traditional media solely as a uh, method of – it's a model I call you do the work, we'll take the money, which I don't approve of, then I'm not so happy with it. But in general, I think it's great if people who are in the audience want to participate in the process of getting – useful information out to other people who might want it. The place that people get their information from, do you think that influences the way they interpret the information? So, for example, big events like Ferguson, Missouri, which happened recently, a lot of um, stories were coming through social media. Some, A lot of younger people are only getting their news through social media. Mm. We know that for a fact, and they're not then let's say, backing up that with traditional news outlets. Do you think that people's perceptions change depending on where they get their news information from? With Ferguson, it was um, – it's an interesting story. If, you were, if your social media of choice is Facebook, you weren't getting much of anything for the first few days of it because the Facebook algorithm didn't think that that was important. Um, Twitter kind of erupted with Ferguson – Uh, information, but a great deal of it, a a really enormous amount of it, was pointing to traditional sources uh, as links, and uh, only some of it was coming from people on the ground, and I think what was coming from people on the ground was extremely valuable uh, and, and useful. Whether people are choosing to get things from a certain kind of place as opposed to another uh, I'm not sure whether whether that influences what they understand or whether they w- whether they understand things based on what they've used for a media source or whether they've picked a media source based on what they want to understand. And there, there's a lot of uh, research going on in this area about what people think of as an echo chamber of wanting only things that will confirm what you already believe. Uh, and there there are some major problems with that if it does occur to a large degree. And finally, you're a lecturer. You teach future journalists. What are some of the skills, um, the technical skills, um, that are new for today's journalists or the journalists of the future, and especially with reference to the technology that Mm -hmm. they're going to be using? I separate principles from tactics in journalism. And I think the principles 
are largely unchanged, which are things like being accurate, being thorough, fair, independent. I would add be transparent, uh, not an old principle, but an, I think I hope a new one. The tactics, which include the techniques and the technology, are changing all the time. What I encourage students to do is to uh, understand to the degree they can and use different kinds of technology in the production and the their own consumption uh, and to ex uh, explore and test widely but not to get stuck on any one. Today, obviously, they need to understand social media. They need to, I think, understand uh, things like how the World Wide Web works. Uh, they need to, if, if I could order all journalism students to do something, it would be to get uh, competent at very low-level programming, nothing fancy, things like JavaScript, because I think understanding code is useful because they're going to have to work in the future with programmers, and it's helpful to understand what they do. Uh, in all kinds of areas, it's changing so fast. So, uh, you know, a few years ago we'd say learn this, but now that's gone. So I think it's be adaptable, be curious, be ready to try new things all the time. Earlier this month, The Economist, a 171-year-old publication known for in-depth analysis of global current affairs, launched a mobile app that delivers short, concise news stories. I spoke to The Economist's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, and asked him to describe the app and why he felt they needed to add this format to their existing digital platform. Well, the Espresso app is designed to be read in about five minutes. Our digital editor claims you can do it in two and a half, but the rest of us mere humans don't quite reach that level. And the way it works is the first five bits are five chunks, about 150 words long, and these are things telling you what's going to happen today, and they give you commentary on that. And then the next bit is a brief summary of what has happened overnight, so you're hopefully brought up to speed so that when you walk into a meeting, not only do you have the advantage of knowing what might happen today, but you're also up to speed in terms of what happened overnight. And then there's the sort of market data about where markets have got to. But the aim is to be like a sort of early morning espresso, a kind of quick jolt to the system. And the big difference between our app and other people's is there aren't any links. Sometimes we'll, we'll say, look, there's a background article on this if you want to read it. But pretty much most of the pitch is, look, read this, and in five, six minutes, you'll be ready for the day. Now, is this linked to a specific time zone? You say that people will get it in the morning, or do users set it? It depends on where the users are located. Um, you get it at 6 a.m. in the morning in uh, London, Singapore, and New York. So there are sort of three editions a day. And that makes a little bit of difference to what happens in news. Because, for instance, in the Asian edition, you could have a piece saying, look, today there is going to be a meeting of the Bank of Japan. Um, but by the European edition, that meeting could have taken place and it would go from being a sort of forward-looking piece to one of the quick updates saying, no, they didn't raise interest rates or whatever happened. Okay. And is this a way for The Economist to diversify um, your audiences? Do you see different demographics consuming news on different platforms? Or is it the same readers just using different outlets out of convenience? It seems to be a mixture of both. I mean, what, what's the first lot of numbers we've seen is in the first sort of week, 200,000 people downloaded, of whom I think 20 to 30,000 seem to be people who, who haven't had anything to do with this before. 
anecdotal evidence is uh, I went to a dinner last night in London where there were a few people from finance, uh, people from fashion, rather interesting, um, who tried it. Um, but, but the sort of core people liked it, which was good. But also people who hadn't sort of seen it before or wouldn't normally read The Economist, particularly young people, seem to be going for the idea of just having something every day that brings you up to speed very quickly and doesn't, um, they may not have as much time to read at the weekend as their parents or whatever. What makes this the right time to launch the app? I think two things. The first was that we sat and we looked and we tried to work out where we could, horrible phrase, add value. And that was exactly what we did with the weekly app. We have a weekly, quite successful, a lot of people, Australia and New Zealand, take it and, and, and Hong Kong and areas where it's difficult to get copies to. That is the weekly app. And we sat and we looked at all the other people who were producing apps at the time. They tend to do a lot with bells and whistles and multimedia and video and this thing and that. Many of them are wonderful. But we thought what our readers wanted really was a very, very you know, slimmed down, sleek and very easy to use digital version of the paper. And we added audio because we thought that's what um, some people wanted to listen to it whilst they were at the gym or on the car or something like that. But we tried to make it as simple as possible. When people began to produce daily apps, we sort of looked at them a lot. And But most people tended to do versions of their kind of front page if you were a newspaper. And so there was a lot of clicking through. There was a lot of long stories to read. Um, there wasn't an attempt to just say, look, this is all that matters today. Read it and, and you can get ahead. And we thought that was actually quite close to what we're reasonably good at or what we think we're, we're reasonably good at, which is putting things very concisely. And it goes quite well, I think, with the general economist principles. You know, we're, we're global. This is global. We are. Um, we tend to take a point of view. This takes a point of view. It says these, this merger doesn't look very good. Um, Iran would be wrong not to do this. Um, it takes a sort of forward forecasting point of view, which is another thing. And it's 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 independent. It comes from the same independent source as the economist. And it actually even has the same sort of business model. We, we once again will charge for it if you're a subscriber. You get it for free. But if you're not a subscriber, you get it free for a month and you try it, and then you'll pay roughly, a, I think it's a dollar a week to get it. And behind that, there is this repetitive idea that we, we have survived and prospered by, we hope, producing things which are good enough that people will want to pay for them. And then, then we go off and try and get advertising to help that as well. But it's, it, most other magazines tend to come from an advertising first point of view. Okay, and um, let me ask you we've one. Been the other way around. And let me ask you one last question. Um, sure. What's next for journalism? What's the next big step? <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant question. I, the answer is we spend the entire time worrying about it. When I say we, I think every editor does. Um, I was very worried by mobile and how those things work, and this is obviously, I suppose, part of our answer to it. Now I'm going to get worried about video and what exactly we should do there um, and we obviously do quite a lot of stuff in that but we're, we're, there's been evidence that business readers people like that are watching re video much more than they did before and, and the lesson of my eight years in this job has been you know repetitive and always the same is that whenever you you could just never be complacent so much has changed just dramatic amounts so in terms of where it's going next yes i think that the video and multimedia are interesting for us there's a challenge there because we still believe and i think that's I think it's correct that the easiest way to take on a lot of complicated information is to read it. It's certainly the quickest. And so there's a bit where we defend some old verities, but we are also find new ways. And that's really what Espresso is about. Espresso is the economist. It's 
hopefully got all the old virtues of The Economist, but it's in a place and at a time when people want five, six minutes of their day just to be able to set up the rest of the day in the same way as a lot of people read The Economist at the weekend and then think, well, I've read that, I'm off, i finished. Well, that's all we have time for this week. For more information about my guests and how to download or subscribe to the show, head over to the Radio 3 program archive on rthk.hk. Don't forget to join me next week when we'll be looking at the impact of technology on the recruitment industry. Until then, I'm Angelina Draper, wishing you a great week.